0: So we are uh, considering um, the book of Ephesians again, um, continuing our our study, still in chapter one, and our our subject today is seeing and believing God's power. Now it might seem uh, fairly obvious, but if we want to see God's power, we need to open our eyes. And I mean that in a, in a, in a metaphorical uh, sense, of course, uh, because what, what we mean by that is that we need to focus our minds and look for the evidence of God's power in His Word and all around us. Now, one of the tools that God has given us to, to, to help us with that is our imaginations the ability to imagine things, to, to form an image in our minds. Of things which otherwise would be difficult to see and that's what we need to do if we want to appreciate the scale of some of the things in God's word and that's certainly true when we need to try and understand the scale of God's power because no one's ever seen anything like it before it's it's awesome it's immeasurable it's terrifying it's it's without limits and it's wonderful now we have to be careful when we use our imaginations that we don't get carried away um i sometimes get carried away when i try to imagine what heaven's going to be like i like to think that my (laughs) imaginations have got some grounding in scripture but maybe they occasionally get a little bit fanciful but when it comes to imagining god's power honestly you know We can't get carried away enough. No matter how big you imagine it is, whatever image you form in your mind, it will be less. It will be less than what it really is. And I think that's why um, the scriptures are so so filled with the revelation of God's power. He wants us... To try to imagine it because, um, because the more we can appreciate it, the more encouraged, the more encouraged we'll be. And we're only going to look at a few scriptures today, but the whole of God's word is filled, crammed with the revelation of things relating to his awesome power. Now, before we read the passage, I just, just want to just add one, one more thing. And that's just to say that we really do need this um, appreciation of God's power. We need to see it. It's not a sort of a, an optional thing, um, a nice extra to what we understand from the Scriptures. I'm going to suggest to you today that, that we need to see it because we need the encouragement that we get from that because otherwise we will not be Effective as Christians in the world today. I was listening to Radio 4's um, Thought for the Week, uh, Thought for the Day rather, on, on, on Thursday, and it was just one of those little things that kind of encouraged me that I was maybe on the right lines with what I wanted to say today because it just, it just fitted um, a, a, a kind of perfectly. Um, and it, the, the speaker, it was following President Obama's um, very positive. Um, State of the uh, the nation speech that he gave earlier in the week, and the speaker was talking about um, the need for an attitude of hopefulness, hopefulness instead of fear in the world, uh, because hope, as she was saying, is a thing that gives people courage to face all the difficulties of life. But she was also saying that hope can be naive, and hope can be even dangerous. If it's based on nothing more than blind optimism. But we as Christians, we can be cheerleaders of hope in the world today. Hope should be our habit of mind. If our habit is to see the positive in a difficult situation. If our habit is to see the silver lining to a cloud. If our habit is to be content even in the face of disappointment, then that habit and that attitude can have a positive impact on the people around us, not to mention a positive impact on, on the way uh, we feel inside as well. And if we, want to, if we want to reach people with the gospel, there has to be something in us that they can see that is attractive something that they want if there's no evidence of Christ making a positive impact in our lives why would anyone imagine that Christ can make a positive impact in their life if there's no evidence of God's light shining in our lives the light of hope then why why would they have any interest in getting to know more about the gospel? And the thing is, and the point why we can be cheerleaders of hope is that as Christians we've got more reason, haven't we, to be to be hopeful than anyone else. It says in verse 18, and we are going to read it in a moment, that we've been called to a hope. The hope uh, associated with the riches of his glorious inheritance. And this is a, a real hope. It's based on real things, it's not based on blind optimism, it's not wishful thinking. It's based on real things, three real things, I suggest. Firstly, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the absolute faithfulness of the one who will never, ever break his promises to us. And thirdly, his power. His power. His absolute power because nothing can stop him fulfilling his promises to us. Nothing can stop him fulfilling every intention of his will. So we're going to read the passage now in Ephesians 1. It's from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Keep in mind as we read, and as I share a few thoughts after that on the passage, that the reason why Paul wrote these words was to encourage them to be hopeful. And I hope it will have the same effect on us. And the key to the encouragement throughout the whole of the letter to the Ephesians um, and probably the whole of the Bible, um, is our ability to see and believe in God's power. So I'm going to read, I'm reading from the NIV as usual, and uh, from verse 15. <clears throat> for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus <laughs> and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking, The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Fantastic, amazing passage, isn't it? And the power theme can be seen throughout the whole of that passage, um, I suggest. But I think it's more obvious in the second half from verse verse 19 onwards. And there Paul is trying to explain something. that he's clearly struggling with himself when he just says this incomparably great power, but he refers to three things, I think, where he says that God's mighty strength is displayed. Firstly, when he raised Christ from the dead. Secondly, the position of the Lord Jesus today. And thirdly, the things that Jesus does for us day in, day out. I'd like to just explore those um, three things in turn. So, raising Christ from the dead. Raising someone from the dead's difficult, isn't it? Actually, it's, it's quite impossible, isn't it? It's impossible for us because we don't have that power. Even with all our technology and medical expertise, we do not have the ability to stop people dying or bring them back from the dead. Yes, we can defer death in some cases, longer than we could a hundred years ago. Yes, we can resuscitate people sometimes from when their hearts have stopped beating and they're, 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 they've stopped breathing, uh, breathing as, long as, it st- as long as it happens quite soon. That's different, isn't it? It's not the same as bringing someone back from the dead. We can't do that because we don't have that power. So when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was displaying a mighty power. But it's like the same, I think, when he calmed the storm. Remember that terrible storm? The disciples thought it was going to going to um, sink the boats. And Jesus stood up and he displayed again mighty power by calming the storm just by a word. Two words. Be still. And the storm stopped. An amazing display of mighty power. But like just talking to the storm... And like when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it didn't seem to take an awful lot of effort. Didn't seem to break much sweat at all over those two things, did he? Now we might say, well that's because he's got so much power. Even when he lived, uh, so to speak, as an ordinary man, there's nothing ordinary really about the Lord Jesus, but you know what I mean. When he took on flesh and came into this world with human weakness, he still seemed to have inherent power that he could do those amazing things apparently so, so easily. But the only reason I'm making this point about effort is because you would have thought, I would have thought at least, that raising Jesus to life again would be easier. Would be easier. Bearing in mind that in John chapter 1 it says that in him was life. He's the son of God. He is He's the essence of life. He's the the fullness of life. But in our passage, Paul seemed to be saying that there was something about the raising of Christ from the dead that required a very big effort indeed. A uniquely powerful intervention from God. It says that raising Christ from the dead required the exertion of his mighty strength. So it seems to me that raising Christ was harder than raising Lazarus. Now there's an element of speculation in, in this, um, admittedly, um, but I think maybe that that would be true because when Christ died on the cross, as we know, he laid on him all the sin of the world. He bore all our sins. He died for me. And he died for you. And for you. And for you. And for you. In that sense, he died millions and millions of times over. And I suppose what I was wondering is that when he bore the punishment for every man, woman and child on uh, on this earth. When he experienced that Terrible suffering in order that a righteous God might be able to offer righteously to us forgiveness from sins. I wonder whether that meant his death was in some way a deeper death than any death than any human being will ever experience. And maybe for that reason, it took an, a uniquely mighty exertion of the power of God in order to rescue Christ from the jaws. Of that that death. I don't know. Speculation. But I do find it interesting. That Paul should lead. On the resurrection of Christ. As the evidence. Of God's mighty power. Now our hope is. Dependent on the death. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Jesus says in first corinthians 15 doesn't it that without the resurrection we have no hope Um, and that chapter of course is setting out the case for why we can believe in our own resurrection because the lord jesus has been raised Um, because christ has been raised all believers will be raised one day so maybe that's another interpretation of what paul was trying to say about god's mighty power That in Christ's resurrection, we can see the resurrection of everyone who believes. Not just the resurrection of one person, but the resurrection of millions. And in that sense, that also would be a display of God's mighty power. So I'm not sure which of those might be true. To me, they both appeal. So in our discussion um, meeting, either tonight or possibly the next one we do, Maybe that's something that we might just have a little bit more of a a think about. But there's the first thing. In some way, God's mighty power is displayed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Then the second thing that Paul talks about is the position that Christ has now. Let me just read a few words again. Just from the end of verse 20, it talks about how God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come and god placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything everything in mr obama's speech i just heard a um, a clip of it um, on the news um, he said the united states of america is the most powerful nation on earth, period. Nothing comes close. That's what he said. And I'm glad he put it in context. Because in that context, amongst the nations of the world, he's probably right. But then, above the United States of America, verse 21 says, far above, far above, we have the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Far above everything. Even if every nation on earth joined forces, all the people and all the armies and all the military strength and all the nuclear weapons, all you put all of that together, it would still be far less than the power of the Lord. Now, the people in Ephesus, um, I understand, um, may well have been struggling with some of the earthly powers, uh, and also spiritual powers that they understood, that were around them. Um, The power of Rome, the might of Rome was very, very much on show, wasn't it? Um, But also, um, Ephesus, like many cities, statues everywhere of the the so-called gods. And in those superstitious times, I suspect that There were some, at least in the church in Ephesus, who as well as believing in the one true God and believing in the Lord Jesus, would also have believed in some of these these other gods. And gods like Diana, they were feared. They were considered to be powerful gods. So what an encouragement for the saints in Ephesus to remind them that their God, their God who was rooting for them, was more powerful than Rome. And more powerful than Diana. And more powerful than anything else that they could imagine. So that's the third thing. The the second thing. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. His position today. And then the third thing is power is displayed in what he does on an ongoing basis. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1 um, we're told that he is the head of the church. So he's the, um, the master, the, uh, the ruler, the ultimate authority over the church. That's why we can't pick and choose which of his commands that we, we obey. That's why we can't just sort of decide which ones apply to us in our culture today or which ones we find more convenient and disregard the ones which are a little bit less palatable we can't do that because we're under his authority. He is the one, he's the boss. He's the one over the church. But here in verse 22, it says that he's head over everything for the church. For the church. So although he's got the right to demand our service and to expect us to obey all of his commands, the encouragement here is that he uses his position and he uses his mighty power for us to protect us, to provide for us, to to nourish the church. By the way, verse twenty three seems to suggest that we somehow complete him. To get my head round this one a little bit, and I have to say I did read a couple of commentators because the plain reading of it seems to suggest that we complete him. Um, but um, I think the phrase, us being the fullness of him, should be understood in the, by the second part of the sentence. Because there it says that he is the one who fills everything in every way. We're only the fullness of him in the sense that he is giving his, his fullness to us. I think that's the, the right understanding of that, of that. But you know, when you think about him being the filler of everything, This is another area where we need to use our imaginations a little bit just to to try and get our heads around it. Remember that it says in in John chapter 1, it says that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And from the moment we start to try to get our heads around the vastness of the universe, for the moment that we try and appreciate his his creative power, his power in creation. We realize that this is just something that is totally beyond our ability to um, to, um, to 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 understand to see, isn't it? But then, <laughs> but then there's more because then we get to Hebrews one and three, and it says that he sustains all things by the power of his word. He is the filler and the sustainer of everything. So without him, the universe would be empty. And without him, the universe would die. And then our lives, if we choose to exclude him, they will be empty. We might fill them with all kinds of stuff, but we'll have nothing in our lives that is of any value. So he is the, the filler of our lives and he's the one who sustain our lives, sustains our lives. If we exclude him, we might think our lives are lively, but actually they will be lifeless without him. He is the filler and the sustainer of everything. Now our subject today um, is seeing and believing God's power. I think those two things go very close together. We can clearly see God's power in creation, and that makes the believing in God easier, doesn't it? I know there are many who take a different line of view, but the scriptures say that you've only got to look at creation, says when you look at creation, mankind is without excuse. You can't look at creation with an open mind and come to any other conclusion than intelligent design, that there is a divine being um, behind it. And likewise, when we look at the compelling evidence for the resurrection, again it's, it helps, it makes it easier for us to believe in the power of God. A, I can't remember his name, but one of the um, a famous lawyer, um one of the founders of Um, Harvard Law Law University I think Um, he said of the resurrection that there is more evidence for the fact of that, the historical fact of that than there is for any other historical event in, in, in history so you look properly at the evidence for the resurrection we can see God's power and that helps us to believe in it so when it comes to christ's position as the ruler of the universe um, that's harder to see isn't it because it's so much outside our experience but if we can see and believe in god's power in creation and see and believe in god's power in the resurrection then that makes it easier for us to believe in all the other things that we read in god's words including the things which are which which are harder to get our our heads around But I was just wondering, is there anything else? Is there anything else that we can see that will help us to appreciate God's power? And I think there is. And in a sense, it's it's similar to what I said already about the evidence of God's power in creation. Because I think that when you look at something that someone has made... When you look at their handiwork, you get an appreciation of their capability, their skills, don't you? Their power. When you, you look at what they've done, and I look at Steve's workbench, and I, I, I know that Steve has got more power in the woodworking department than I, than I, than I will than I'll ever have. You know, so you look at what someone has done, their handiwork, you get an appreciation of their power. So where else can we see God's handiwork? Resurrection? Creation? Where else? all around us isn't it it's right here it's it's under our noses it says in chapter 2 we're going to look at this next week it says that we are God's handiwork it says in Philippians 1 and 6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion we are God's handiwork we're also works in progress which explains why we're far from perfect, but nevertheless, we are God's work in progress. You know, it's been said that one of the greatest evidences for the truth of the resurrection and the gospel is the changed lives of believers. The early Christians especially, ordinary people who had believed in Jesus before he was arrested and then became terribly fearful and hid themselves away and they were, you know, they were, they, they were, they frightened of what was going to happen to them. And then suddenly, within a very short period of time, these people were filled with courage and were proclaiming the gospel and were willing to dedicate their lives for it and even give their lives for it. The changed lives of believers is one of the most amazing evidences for the truth of the gospel. And likewise today, we can see the power of God at work in people's lives. In other people's lives, and if we dare to look within ourselves, we don't like to do that sometimes. We might think it's wrong. We might think we're, 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 we're tempting pride. But you look within yourself at the work that God is doing within you and has done. I think I said recently sometimes we lose, so we, we focus on our faults and we forget about the progress that has been made since we first came to know Christ as well. our Saviour. You look at what God is doing in you, and you can also see. The evidence of his power. Now I'm going to say more about this uh, next week. Uh, when we move on to chapter 2. The title for next week is actually no longer dead. It's focusing on the, on the new birth. But I, I think that the, the, the two subjects are linked. Because I think the more we think about the transformation that God has made in our lives and is making in our lives. The more we can appreciate um, his power. In Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1, it says that the gospel, it says the message, is the power of God for those who believe. Our old nature sometimes makes it hard to see that transformation. But there is a work in progress. As I say, it's, it's God's work. And the more we appreciate it, the more we'll appreciate his power. And that will help us, again, with the other things, to believe in and see the things which are more difficult to appreciate, more difficult to see. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that now, but just to leave you with a few clues, appetisers, if you like, uh, for what we're going to talk about, or part of what we're going to talk about next week. There are things in our passage today, the part of the passage that we haven't really looked at, the first part, things that Paul has heard about, things that he gave thanks for, things that he felt within himself, And things that he longed for. Things about the lives of the Ephesians, which are also true about us today, that demonstrate the life-changing power of the Lord. And as I say, we're going to explore that a little bit more um, next week. I'd like to finish with Paul's prayer in verse 18. Verse 18, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He wanted them to see something, didn't he? He wanted them to see with the eyes of their hearts, to have, in other words, a heartfelt appreciation of what they've been called to. And yes, they had been called to belong to Jesus, just as we have. And yes, they had been called to be his holy people, just as we have. And yes, they had been called to individual areas of service. The Apostle Paul would say that he would have been called to be an apostle. Each of us are called to individual areas of service. So they'd been called for, to all of that. But there was an overarching thing that they'd been called to, which Paul highlights in this passage. They had been called to a hope. They had been called to a hope associated with God's riches and awesome power. And that's why we can be cheerleaders of hope in the world today. We don't need Obama's optimism because we have a hope that can't be taken away. A hope that is guaranteed by the power of God. So we'll leave the message um, there for this week as i say we'll continue on a similar theme but picking up some of the uh, wonderful things that chapter two um reminds us of our transformation from death to life when we uh, return to the subject next uh, next sunday